National Archives podcast series, The Making of the Stalinist State, 1928-1941, presented by Dr. Jane McDermott, the University of Southampton. This is part two of a two-part series. Now, to recap briefly, Lenin introduced the use of terror. Terror continued throughout the 1920s. It was then institutionalized in the 30s by Stalin, and it was intensified in 1937. The question, of course, is why 1937? The international situation was very tense. Within the Soviet Union, there was real fear of social disorder. And, of course, irony is that the social disorder is caused precisely by Stalin's policies, by the, the crises that his revolution from above brought about, which also included discontent among workers as well as peasants. There were strikes in the late 20s and even into 1932. There was also considerable criminal activity, and that included bandits, you know, out in the countryside, not just criminals within um, cities. So there's a combination then of threats from abroad and threats from within, and it culminated in a fear of what Stalin called a fifth column. Recent research shows that the victims of the Great Terror whom earlier historians had assumed to be mainly the elite, you know, notably of the Communist Party and, of course, the Red Army, that in fact they were a minority, that the victims in the majority of the Great Terror were ordinary citizens and what was termed social marginals. Indeed, talk increased of the need to purify Soviet society. Another factor here was the repression of ethnic minorities and foreign communists. And again, of course, that can be linked to the notion of a fifth column. Could Stalin trust them? It can also, of course, be linked to, as a, to the notion of ethnic cleansing, because he did, after all, um, exile whole peoples, notably from the Caucasus. On the 20th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution, 7th of November 1937, Stalin declared at a private banquet, anyone who attempts to destroy the unity of the socialist state is a sworn enemy of the state and of the people of the USSR. And we shall destroy any such enemy even if he is an old Bolshevik. We shall destroy his entire kith and kin. Anyone who threatens the unity of the socialist state, either in deed or in thought, yes, even in thought, will be mercilessly destroyed. And I think that is particularly chilling. Historians then identify many causes for the start of the Great Terror in 1937. There's disagreement over why it was brought to an end. The totalitarian view is that the boss, as Stalin was known, could start and stop the mass arrests at will. And material has been found in the archives to support uh, that, although it 
The material doesn't explain why he did it. It says that he did do it. Revisionists also point to archival evidence, which suggests that the Great Terror was actually a difficult process to stop. There are indications that close associates of Stalin tried to change course in January 1938, that they even criticized the NKVD as being overzealous and irresponsible. And remember that it's the Great Terror that was stopped at the end of 1938, not terror. Terror and the Gulag continued. In 1947, for example, Work began on a 750-mile railway in northern Siberia, which was to head in two directions. It was to go west and east. Only 435 miles were completed in climate and terrain that was so harsh that the prisoners could work only six months in a year. At the peak of activity in 1951, 85,000 prisoners were working on that railway. There are no exact figures for the numbers who died, though it was termed the Railway of Bones, and it's recently been estimated that around 300 a month died at the peak of activity. Now, I give that as an example because two years ago it was actually in British newspapers because the Kremlin is thinking of completing it. Not with the same methods, though, of course. Both totalitarians and revisionists then highlight the way in which the Stalin regime came to emphasize by the late 1930s nation and state rather than social class. The terror then shows a shift in ideology. Stalin championed what some historians call a radical national Bolshevism which was really a form of, of Russian nationalism, what Lenin called Great Russian Chauvinism. And of course, that's what Lenin accused Stalin of in 1922. But as most historians point out, Lenin's criticism came rather late in the day. If you look at point seven, you'll see I'm back to this Nov question, was Stalin really necessary? Alec Nov insisted that yes, Lenin created the conditions which underpinned Stalin and Stalinism. But Stalin was not the executioner of Lenin's will, he was the executioner of Lenin's comrades. Stalin used the terror to transform the ruling group. According to Robert Conquest, Stalin struck at every form of comradeship and solidarity outside of personal allegiance to himself. Nor, of course, did Stalin simply strike at Soviet citizens. Foreigners, especially foreign communists, were particularly suspect. And I'll just give you one example that I came across recently. A Swiss socialist, Felix Platon, organized Lenin's return to Russia in April 1917. Platon also protected Lenin during an assassination attempt and for that, Lenin's wife, Nadezhda Krupskaya, presented Platon with a small revolver, which was inscribed to the savior of Ilyich. Now, Platon was sentenced to eight years in the Gulag for unlawful possession of a firearm. Can't say Stalin didn't have a sense of humor, can you? 
Now, I'm on to point eight. There's another debate, um, often between revisionists and totalitarians, and that is over the number of victims of the terror. For example, before the archives were open, estimates of the camp and the prison population um, during the 1930s could be made by assessing survivors' reports and by manipulating gaps in statistics and other indirect evidence. And you get a whole range of these estimates. For example, and you'll see some there, Alexander Dallin and Boris Nikolaevsky suggested 10 million. Robert Conquest, 9 million. Stephen Wheatcroft, 4 to 5 million. Now Miasny, 3.5 million. And Nicholas Timoshev, 2 million. Now, records in the NKVD archives reveal that about 2 million people were incarcerated in camps, colonies, and prisons at the beginning of 1939, and another million were in labor settlements. Um, those were the settlements to which kulaks and other undesirables had been exiled, making a total of about 3 million. By the time of Stalin's death in 1953, the total had risen to well over 5 million, largely as a result of the mass exiling of um, Soviet Germans, Crimean Tatars, and others accused of, of treachery or potential treachery during uh, the Great Patriotic War. The evidence from the archives so far seems to confirm the lower estimates, not the lowest, but the ones like um, Stephen Wheatcroft's. But the figures, of course, don't include many people who were released from camp or exile, but not permitted to return to their place of origin. And there is more doubt over the number of excess deaths from violence, hunger, and disease. You know, Because you have to think, what, who is a victim of the terror? Is it a direct victim because you shot or you die from the labor? Or is it you know, a related um, uh, aspect? Archives released in the mid-1990s indicated that there were somewhere between 8 and 14 million excess deaths, by which they mean deaths above the normal expected level, between the 1926 census and the 1939 census, and that most of these excess deaths came during the famine of 1932-33. However, in what was in... Um, 1989, Roy Medvedev, that historian that I've um, indicated to you before, he gave a much higher figure, having gone into some of the Soviet uh, archives. And I've, I've put these um, together for you. Now, what Medvedev did was he included all victims of Stalin he comes to this huge figure of 40 million. He's suggesting that 20 million died as a direct result of the terror. 20 million. Now, historians and demographers in the West are very skeptical of these figures. Sheila Fitzpatrick, for example, has said that she can't find a serious basis for the calculations. And she's particularly cautious about his... Um, estimate of 9 to 11 million prosperous peasants, which I think is the second bullet point. 
um, 9 to 11 million prosperous peasants being driven from their lands, with another 2 to 3 million arrested or exiled in the early 1930s. In her view, Medvedev did not take into account the program of industrialization, that that was a pull factor, that they weren't just pushed out and exiled, but that they were attracted to the factories, you know, to go off the land. And it did, industrialization drew millions of peasants to the towns. She also pointed out that Medvedev based his figures on the assumption that the average peasant family of the late 1920s had eight members, whereas actually it had five. As for Medvedev's figure of six to seven million deaths due to famine, you know, the famine of 1932 to 33, another Russian historian, Viktor Danilo, um, who was an expert on Soviet agricultural history, uh, gives a lower estimate. He estimates it, it was about three to four million. Now, you'll notice I'm talking of high and low estimates, but they're all in the millions, so you need to keep that in mind. Medvedev's 40 million, of course, is in stark contrast to an estimate that an American um, scholar made in 1946 of between 4.5 to 5 million excess deaths. Robert Conquest, the, you know, the totalitarian um, historian, he considers that Medvedev's overall total is about right. However, he also admits that it's not clear where the figures come from. There's also, of course, the issue about why historians think it's important, you know, whether it's 4.5 or 5 million. Revisionist historians like Sheila Fitzpatrick and Stephen Wheatcroft insist that in estimating lower numbers of victims of the terror, they are not exonerating Stalin. But the debate over figures has been extremely bitter. Two demographers, Barbara Anderson and Brian Silver, have supported the revisionists. They um, did some calculations in the mid-1980s. They estimate excess deaths between 1926 and 1939 to be around 3.5 million. And they prefer the term population deficit to excess deaths. Because what they say is population deficit implies not only that mortality was higher in this period, but also that fewer births occurred. So it isn't just about you know, people who died, it's about people who might have been born otherwise but never were. And that, of course, could have been caused by the deaths of so many people of childbearing age, by catastrophes such as famine, and by decline in fertility, which historically tends to happen with uh, urbanization. Robert Conquest dismissed Anderson and Silver's work as a product of demography. It's not historical enough that it really they needed to be Sovietologists. And in response, Anderson said that, quote, Conquest wouldn't know a number if it bit him. That gives you an idea of the bitterness of the debate. So there's still problems then in trying to comprehend the scale of the term. If you look at the final point, you see a reference to a publication from the mid-1990s, and this was Stalin's Letters to Molotov, 1929 to 1936. This gives us some ideas about Stalin's thinking 
concerning his enemies and indeed his friends. For example, he occasionally sent greetings to Molotov's wife, whom he later imprisoned. Molotov's replies are rarely available, and there are lots of gaps in these letters. There's none, for example, for 1928, and that, of course, would be fascinating, because that's when Bukharin and the right opposition broke with Stalin. There's only six letters for 1931 to 1936, and the letters end before the Great Terror of 1937, but they're still enlightening. The early letters when Stalin was allied with Bukharin and engaged in a bitter struggle with the left opposition, demonstrate the relentlessness of Stalin's campaign against Trotsky and his former allies, Zinoviev and Kamenev. Letters written in the summer of 1930 show the detailed interest that Stalin paid to who would be targeted. The letters show that he wanted the interrogators to pay particular attention to the question of foreign intervention. So it's already bothering him in 1930. The letters reveal what he expected of the accused. Not only should they admit their mistakes and confess crimes, but they should abase themselves before the Soviet state. The letters for the 1930s show Stalin's concerns with the dangers of foreign aggression against the Soviet state. Now, to conclude, the contributors to Stalin's Russia see the show trials of 1936-38 as part of a wider conspiracy tapestry, which increasingly emphasized these threats from abroad. Stalin was now focusing on the need to defend the state and the nation. And that, of course, then links the terror, and especially the great terror, with the international context. The fear of potential enemies at home, if war broke out, was a central motivation of the great terror. And yet, at the same time, the terror of the great terror devastated the military officer corps, weakened the Soviet defences, with the result that when the Soviet Union was invaded by the Germans on the 22nd of June 1941, it was disastrously unprepared. Nevertheless, Stalin justified terror. He continued to employ it during the war, and he said that it was in the interests of the state. He admitted that there would be innocent victims, but he said they were unfortunate but unavoidable errors. The individual did not count in the face of the pressing needs of the state, as defined, of course, by Stalin, who insisted that sacrifice was inevitable and essential. There is ongoing historical controversy. The controversy is over the numbers of people arrested, sent to camps, and executed over the origins, the processes, and the outcomes of the terror, over Stalin's motives, aims, and indeed his plans, over the influence of particular individuals and institutions, and finally, over the input from below. All historians agree, however, 
that Stalin put forward noble visions of the future. But in the process of constructing it, according to his edicts, millions of lives were destroyed. So far, the archives suggest that neither the totalitarians nor the revisionists are completely right or wrong. But the latter, at least, has had to accept the importance of ideology and, indeed, of the centrality of Stalin to events and developments in the 1930s. Thank you. This event was recorded live at the National Archives at Kew on November the 15th, 2007. This event is copyright the National Archives, all rights reserved.